Welcome to the We Go There podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... Exactly. We go there. Because no topic should be too taboo, especially when it comes to women's health. We ask the questions you may be too afraid to ask and interview the experts to get the answers you need. So we're doing this completely unfiltered. 100%. Okay, let's go there. All right, so today we have an amazing special guest. Her name is Ann Matthews, and she's a doctor of Chinese medicine. She's very passionate about reproductive health and normalizing the conversation around fertility, labor, loss, and menstruation. She's one of the only fellows of the American Board for Oriental Medicine here in Ontario, and she practices acupuncture and Chinese medicine in her greenhouse-like clinic in the Summerhill neighborhood of Toronto. Overcoming her own infertility diagnosis after being diagnosed with an eight centimeter dermoid cyst, and we're going to learn exactly what that is because I'm not sure what that is. She had to have surgery to remove her left ovary and fallopian tube. So Anne has lived this herself. She's conceived 10 times, grieved five losses, and birthed five lovely little humans. And this conversation is super close to my heart as someone who went through IVF and miscarriage herself. So thank you so much, Anne, for being here. We are so grateful for your time today. I'm pumped. I'm really excited to be here. Welcome. And it fully is a greenhouse. Anne's location's like doors up, steps up from wax on at Summerhill. And every time I walk by it, your location just makes me feel good walking by it. I was like, this is so like a sanctuary. I love that. I have a lot of people actually the wander in requesting to buy plants. <laughs> I think it's a plant store. So that's great. Marketing is working well here. <laughs> There's a plant by your head right now as we look at you on Zoom. So, you know. I'm like, why would they think that? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, we're here for it. We're here yeah. for it. Great. Okay, so should we get right right into it? Yeah. So, okay, I was. We were talking before we started recording about all these things. So, if anyone's ever been through this this journey of fertility, there's a lot of blood tests that come along with it, and you get these numbers like, well, what's your AMH and what's your FSH and what's the ratio and blah 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 blah. And I actually remember, and this was five six years ago that I f- was first going through this. I actually remember what some of my numbers were. For example, I was like before this recording, I was like, Anna, I was 17 on AMH. Is that good? And she's like, what? <laughs> Do you even know what AMH is? I'm like, no, I just remember my number. So we get so obsessed with these numbers. And yet I feel like we don't really even understand why it matters and, and what's important. Right? Yeah. And that is, that is in fact a really good number. Okay. <laughs> just I was 30, I was 34. So, you know. That I mean, thirty. That's even. That's really good for thirty-four. Right. Well, what? I'm impressed with you. What is what is AMH like? What? First of all, let's back up. Tell us. You stay help help us steer this conversation because there's literally so much we could talk about. What is it that you really want more women to know who are potentially listening to this, who are potentially struggling to conceive, thinking about conceiving? Maybe they're you know trying to conceive their second or third child. Maybe they're dealing with loss. Like, where do we even start? So I think it's very important um, to have a full picture of what's going on um, with your your whole body as opposed to just reproduction. Um, And so before even stepping into your doctor's office to then get a referral to a fertility clinic, I think it's really important to sort of take stock of your overall health just generally. So... A lot of the time I have patients that have come in and they haven't even had a path in three years, for example. Um, they haven't gone to visit the dermatologist. They haven't gone to the dentist. They haven't started any form of like physical activity, um, like regular routine in terms of exercise. Or, And I think in order for, um, and I'm sure a lot of women would be like, I don't want to do that. Um, in order for us to start even thinking about, you know, reproduction and, and being a parent to someone else, 
would be to first parent ourselves. And I feel like a lot of the time women will neglect themselves and go straight for, you know, becoming a mom. And I'm not saying like, you don't have to be working out regularly or eating, you know, all the kale, all the kale, organic, (laughs) everything, like making like all of your meals at home. Like that's completely unrealistic, but I would say that it, it is important to treat yourself the way that you would when you were pregnant before you're pregnant. So, you know, avoiding things like binge drinking or drinking nine cups of coffee a day or not drinking any water. All of my patients are listening to this being like, you do all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But starting with that and then going like taking a a full picture of, of your overall health, because I have a lot of people that come in and, you know, their digestion hasn't worked for years and their periods are incredibly light and um, irregular and, and they're, they don't see the connection between the two. So sort of taking a, a step back and looking at what's going on in your own body and addressing that first, because a lot of those issues will only become um, worse with pregnancy. And so making sure that you take care of yourself first and then, and then considering you know the importance of stepping into your GP's office for your physical and to maybe discuss getting a referral to a fertility clinic. So that would be, that'd be my very long winded first step. That's a lot of steps though, within that first step. I know, (laughs) but it's not, you know, I've had a lot of patients who um, I put them on something very basic. Like, like I used to run this program called the energy makeover. That was actually the reason why I even came up with it was because it was six weeks long which feels digestible and it would involve, you know, cutting out a lot of dairy and sugar and, uh, and gluten and, um, and trying to stick to, you know, four glasses of wine or less and trying to have your coffee. A day? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be yeah. nice. Alas. Yeah. A week, a week. Okay. Um, Got it. And, um, and sticking with coffee, before 2 p.m. and and just making sure that you get sufficient amount of water and then doing like four workouts or 30 minutes a week. Right. Like not nothing crazy. And I actually had a lot of patients get pregnant, forget acupuncture. It was those small changes just to take care of themselves first. So it's it's big if you like get overwhelmed by the idea of like becoming a new identity, like a new right. person. But but less so when you look at the actual individual actions of each day and how that could play out towards. Yeah. I love that though. I haven't heard that advice, like taking care of yourself before you're then preparing yourself to take care of a, a child, like let like caring and then delivering and then actually caring for, because all of that in between is a lot on your body. So I, yeah, that's I, such great, such great advice. And I feel like as well, and my, I'm definitely guilty of this. And I know a lot of my girlfriends are as well, where, you know, even as an, an, as an adult or like as a parent, you sort of, you fall back on habits that were easier for you before you became pregnant. Um, once the baby is born, your kids will copy you. And so like her, her therapist actually said to her, my one very good friend, you know, do you, do you want your daughter to prioritize herself? So, and she said, yes. And she said, why don't you? Mm. Mm. Okay. Okay. Fair. Yeah. It's even, it's, it's crazy because you, even if you look at like prenatal vitamins, um, my sister, for example, after she had my niece, Three months later, all of her hair starts falling out. She has no energy. She's like dragging her body up down the stairs to get Avery at night. And she's wondering why she feels so terrible. And I'm like, Jane, well, what are you, what are you taking supplement wise? Like, she's like, well, nothing now. I'm not pregnant. I was like, but you just gave birth to a human. You built a human. You built a new organ. 
you, (laughs) you're feeding her with your body Mm -hmm. and you are not supplementing yourself with any iron specifically. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, should I, would that be good? And I'm like, yes. Like I've been on prenatal since I was 18. You wouldn't believe how many boyfriends I scared. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) But is it so true, right? That, that we, focus so much, like we're willing to take these supplements when we're pregnant because it's for the baby. But then once the baby's out of our body, it's like, you know, we don't prioritize it. And I love that you're talking about this too, because, you know, me, I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of people, you know, who are dealing with pelvic health concerns, you know, they're peeing their pants, they think it's normal, you know, the whole diastasis conversation. But, you know, you can give a ton of exercises. You can give all the advice, if you will, the programming, whatever. But if the person doesn't want to prioritize themselves, you can give them all the tips, the nutrition tips, right? The supplements. But if they're not willing to make themselves a priority and actually follow the protocol and put themselves first, they're not going to get results, are they? Yeah, no, exactly. And it really, it it does. It like it. I think though that it does go with sort of how our society runs currently and like this is obviously a much larger conversation but we it can it actually applies really well to fertility and that we segment everything like ever even when you look at like the physical body there's zero association for example in western medicine between you know i've noticed in my practice if somebody comes in and they're a vegetarian like power to you, but I have got to find a good source of protein for you because otherwise your lining is going to be so thin that it doesn't matter how many eggs you are ovulating each month, they are going to have nowhere to implant. So I really like it's, it's a struggle because I have to then peel back the layers and be like, pause your digestion. And they're like, I'm here to talk about fertility. And I'm like, I'm aware. (laughs) it's connected. And, um, and so I think in terms of like looking at how we operate from being an example to our kids before we have them to just it, making it easier on ourselves, if we just take care of ourselves throughout the whole, whole process, because then when they're a teenager, they, and I, th- I'm actually now my, my eldest is 10 and she I took her running the other day and she said, okay, when we get back, I'm going to have one of those rumble shakes. If that's okay. And I was like, yeah, for sure. She was like, cause that way I'll recover for tomorrow. And I'm like, oh my God, she actually is listening to me. <laughs> like what? And it really occurred to me for the first time that that was good and bad. And, um, and, and that it's, it was important for the fact that I'd actually started caring for myself really early because of an infertility diagnosis. Um, and that I was able to, like, I really encourage patients to, to take that approach as well. And I mean, the same, it's the same in terms of, of pelvic or physio, like prioritizing yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. So many of my patients, even with pelvic floor are like, I went before they give birth, they are going to their, appointments they are on it they're doing their exercises and then once the baby comes even though they're peeing their their pants they're like it's fine my mom did it my grandmother did it I'm like yes but you don't have to yeah you don't have to it's so interesting yeah so interesting I mean yeah coming from a a used to pee their pants person I get I get it (laughs) and I got help and I got help so Exactly. So what, okay. So in looking at, okay, someone trying to conceive or, you know, just getting into this. So they've done, you know, getting, taking care of themselves, getting themselves into a place ideally to conceive, um, thinking of themselves first. At what point do you recommend, um, I guess uh, two questions. So for people who are, who are about to conceive for the first time, for example, what are, are the, when do you recommend them coming for acupuncture, for example? And then also when is it recommended for, you know, fertility, like fertility specific acupuncture? Um, how long should you be trying for things like that? Right. And what are those first steps, I guess, when someone comes to you who is getting, um, 
fertility specific, like acupuncture. Yeah. So I, I love it when a patient comes actually as a referral from a fertility center, because then I have, um, results to go through that are really beneficial for me to understand what's going on at a, at a you know, a, a larger level. Um, if you haven't gone to have like a basic breakdown of, of what's happening on like hormonally, but also, um, structurally, then I would say it really depends on your age. If you are you know, over 35, then I would recommend going right away to your GP to get a referral to a fertility center so that you can just get, um, a basic workup done. Because a lot of the time, I think people get very nervous that if they go and they have a workup done, that they were are immediately going to be classified as like a fertility patient, and then will therefore need all of the potential interventions. And I think that it's really important to understand what what interventions you might need, because you don't want to waste time. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because I push a sense of urgency because I really don't. I like to like sit back a little bit and, and help people relax both with acupuncture, but also just in the conversation in that there's not this, like, it's not as much of a race as we're made to believe. Like I would say I'm a a good example of that. But then if, I mean, if you're over 25 that I would give yourself at least like six months to a year, before you're going and having any discussion with a GP about getting a referral, unless you have some pretty glaring issues. Like for example, you know, you've, you've gone off the pill and you have not gotten your period back or before you went on the pill, you didn't have a regular period. Both of those to me would warrant um, a conversation with your GP before waiting out six to a year um, only because if you have something like polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's more important to have that recognized so that you can take the appropriate steps, um, both in terms of lifestyle, but also potential medications that you might need. Um, and I think it's, especially with PCOS, actually, there's so many, um, ramifications for that particular syndrome that are so much more important for the, for the woman in question than actually for fertility. Like you have an increased risk of having diabetes and for like basic metabolic disease, just generally you have a higher risk of heart disease and stroke. And I think a lot of those issues are ignored and the, the focus becomes like, Oh, you're not going to be able to reproduce. And it's like, yeah, but you're also at risk of a heart attack. So <laughs> You should know that so you can make the appropriate steps and changes to take care of yourself. Um, yeah, it's funny. I like, I, I, or if you have endometriosis. And in that case, I, I generally will tell my patients, even if you don't want to conceive, tell your doctor you do, and you'll get better care as an endo patient. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, disturbing. Yeah. Tr- yeah, it yeah. is disturbing. It is. Um, so, okay. We don't want to get too much into the, the weeds here with like the different tests and whatnot, but, <laughs> you know, I do want to talk about two things. And these are common um, terms that people in fertility hear. Um, but what is AMH? Because we've largely thought that this means it's sort of like, you know, how old your eggs are, but that's not necessarily true. So, right. can you? Can you tell us like, what is it? And you know, why does it matter? I can, I'd love to talk about AMH. So um, AMH or antimullarian hormone is, it's a hormone produced by the follicles on your ovaries um, that is essentially intended to ensure that you don't ovulate multiple eggs at once. So for example, if your AMH is 17, pretty darn good. Um, it's high enough to ensure that you're not ovulating, you know, eight eggs at once and becoming Octomom. Octomom. I was hoping you were going to say Octomom. I love Octomom. <laughs> I like meant to Google her after yesterday. God bless her. 
wonder what's happening with those kids. <laughs> Just to check up what she's up to. Like, what's going on Octo Mom these days? <laughs> I was thinking about her. Old Octo. She and I. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I had a fascination with her as a child. That should have been my first clue. 100%. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if if you have a lower AMH, you can think to yourself, okay, well, there's there's less eggs that could potentially be ovulated each month. So therefore, the amount of AMH doesn't need to be quite so high. So the thought is, if you have a lot of eggs that are just ready to go, then you need more AMH to ensure that you are not ovulating all of those eggs at once. I mean, obviously not all of them, because that would be millions, but um, multiple eggs at once. I think of AMH as mostly just a very good indicator of how well you will do on IVF stimulation medication. Um, and so in that capacity, it's really important to know when Mm -hmm. you're heading into fertility treatment, what your AMH is. However, it's also a good predictor of, um, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So if you have like extremely high AMH, you won't ovulate because your AMH is so high. And so as you get older, as a PCOS patient, the likelihood of you being able to spontaneously ovulate each month actually is higher. And so that's one of the real superpowers of having PCOS and understanding what that means for you. Um, It also means that if your AMH is really high as a PCOS patient, that the likelihood of your um, becoming overstimulated on fertility medication is, is a likely possibility. And so making sure that you're um, everybody on board is, is aware of that and then fixing it so that your medications are appropriate for you and your condition. Um, where I run into issues with AMH is that it is not a predictor of pregnancy. Um, and so if you have a lower AMH, even one that is you know, less than one, if you are getting a regular period every month and you're getting an LH surge, you're ovulating and can become pregnant. So there's a lot of patients that I have, and I would actually be one of these patients where if I were to go to a fertility center and they were to run my numbers, um, I wouldn't be a candidate for IVF at all because my AMH is so low um, that I wouldn't respond to stems likely but it doesn't mean that I don't have eggs. It just means that I wouldn't respond to gonadotropins or anything that would increase my FSH because my FSH is actually already pretty high. So, and that's not necessarily the case in in all patients either. You you could have a normal FSH and a low AMH. Okay. So what's FSH? That was my next question. (laughs) Follicle stimulating hormone. I know what it is vaguely, (laughs) but like Lexi here needs to know. Everybody else needs to know. Everybody else needs to know. Yes. So your, your FSH is produced by your pituitary and it's essentially the hormone that is communicating with your ovaries, indicating how many follicles should be or need to be stimulated. So if you have, um, as you get older, for example, or as you approach menopause, your FSH becomes less of a whisper and more of a yell. So it's sort of like my, my kids, my three-year-old is my current state, like of FSH, where it's like, it's my FSH is yelling at my ovary, AKA Samson being like, come on, you can do this. (laughs) And, and only then will Samson do something. Whereas back in the day, it was more like Aiden, my eldest, where I could just speak normally to her and be like, Hey, could you, could you maybe create a few follicles for me and make me ovulate. That would be great. And then she would do it. She's great. (laughs) So, okay. So when you have very loud FSH, it's a sign that you need a little more help ovulating because you're getting old. Well, essentially it's it. You have, instead of being able to just quietly tell your ovaries, like, Hey, it's about that time. Maybe create some follicles and create some estrogen and maybe an egg or two, 
you're instead of that, now your FSH, your pituitary is screaming at your ovaries. Like you've done nothing. Why aren't you doing anything? Make me some follicles. Oh, that doesn't sound like fun. So, okay. If you have that, like, does that mean like periods get worse as you get older? Like what is the implication? Yeah. Not really actually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because so FSH, because it is helping you create more follicles, those follicles are what are producing estrogen. And so as you get older, your periods can become shorter and shorter. Um, and like less and less flow. Unfortunately, then you get some estrogen uh, deficiency symptoms as well with that, like hot flashes before your periods or like vaginal dryness or like less cervical mucus, like aching joints and bones. All of those are symptoms of, of a, a lower estrogen, which is partially because of the yelling FSH or the lack thereof, it's, you have more FSH. That's the thing. It's like, you will have significantly more FSH, but the reason you have more FSH is because the ovaries are not listening. They're badly behaved. And so instead of you being able to have a normal conversation with your ovary, your pituitary is now like having to be like having a stern talk. And then as you get older and older, the, the talk becomes less and less necessary because the ovaries are just going to not do anything <laughs> at all. I'm just picturing like little cartoon characters yeah. in this whole description. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what's happening. You should just picture my son. Like he's literally the definition of a badly behaved ovary. <laughs> this is so have, good. There's nothing <laughs> I, uh, we all have three-year-olds on this conversation, so yeah. I think we can all relate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we got it, <laughs> clearly. Now you're going to look at your three-year-old and think to yourself, like, you're a badly behaved ovary. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Just trying to be a responsible pituitary. Like, I'd like to speak to you normally, but you're not listening. Okay, I have a personal question that I would like to ask you, and then I'm going to throw this on you. But, you know, I'll start by sharing, I guess, a little bit for me as someone who works in the sort of prenatal wellness space, teaching pregnant women about fitness and pelvic health, and then struggling to conceive while teaching pregnant women, and then going through a miscarriage, and then IUIs, and then uterine surgery, and then IVF. And it was not easy, but it, you know, it was something that now in hindsight, I think was a blessing I can at least say that because I was fortunate to get the outcome that I wanted. I acknowledge that. But also just that it builds a certain degree of empathy for the struggle that so many other women are experiencing. And here you are, Anne, and you have experienced tremendous loss. And it's in your bio, and you shared that with us generously, that you've experienced five losses. You've conceived 10 times. And and you're in this space of helping other women conceive. So can you touch a little bit on that? I know we're getting a tiny bit off topic, but I actually think it's really relevant. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I um, It's actually really interesting because I have so many children. Um, I feel like that sometimes is, it gets a little lost. And I, I actually, it's, it's fine that it does now because I, I try when anybody comes to see me or when I have any conversations to like spin it so that the attention is mostly on them. Um, well, and I'll like drop that little in like, Oh yeah, I've had five miscarriages. If they're in need of, of like, of sharing like vulnerability. So because I find a lot of the time women especially feel really guarded about their own experiences because they feel either that they've gone through it alone or that mm-hmm. someone will judge them for it and um just heartbreaking and most of the time wrong so that I'll like I'll drop that little nugget in but yeah I think because I started out like I was 18 when I had my uh ovary removed and the physician who did the surgery was was quite blunt and <laughs> told my mom that if she wanted grandkids, then I better get started ASAP because this was going to be a challenge. Of course, you know, my mom's like, 
I don't care if you have zero children, you're not getting started now. (laughs) You can have dogs. I don't care. Um, Bless you, Sharon. And so I started pretty soon. Like I actually, I I started um, trying to conceive as soon as I got married to my first husband. So I was like 25 and, and off the bat, I had a blighted ovum and uh, a miscarriage, which at 25, like I had wrapped my mind around the fact that I was going to have a hard time. So then when it actually happened, I was like, huzzah, the doctor was wrong. And then to go to the ultrasound and have the tech not show me the screen and then have a doctor call me while I was in the parking garage stairs being like, you're going to need to come in because there's tissue in your uterus that I had been, you know, fondly referring to as a child. And, um, and at 25, like you don't even think it's possible. Like nobody's discussing miscarriage at 25. No. And so I, I went through that experience and, and I still to this day, like remember going through the like physical experience of a miscarriage and how excruciating it is. Mm. Like it is as painful as labor. So for them to send you home, like here's your misoprostol, like put it next to your cervix and then just, you know, it'll be like a heavy period. Um, Mm -mm. Incorrect. Like, so doctor, I'm sorry, sir. Clearly you don't know what a period is like because that's not it. Um, and so having that as like the start was, I th- I'm actually similar to something. I was grateful that I started with a miscarriage because when I then became pregnant with Aiden, I was cautiously optimistic and really appreciative of of the whole process, I think more so than I would have been had it never occurred to me. So, I mean, there's pros and cons, like the same time, whenever I've been pregnant, I've been more nervous to have a miscarriage than excited to be pregnant Mm -hmm. until I get to like 12 weeks. And even then now I think because of working in this fertility space and being aware that you can have miscarriages right up until 40 weeks and it is it's it creates a whole new heightened awareness of of both being appreciative but also being scared because the way that it's positioned in society that if these things happen to you you are very much alone and so um I mean it's really good that we're breaking the stigma and having these conversations now but I think I think it even with these conversations, it was like my more recent miscarriage was uh, in 2019 and I shared it very openly on social media. And I, I did so because I didn't want anybody else to have that experience and feel like they were alone. Um, but then at the same time, it was really interesting because 50% of me was really grateful for the support. And then 50% of me didn't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> like I, I kind of wanted to, it's kind of like having a, 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 like a wound and you just want it to heal over. So I, I kind of, I under, I was, I was happy to have shared, but then also now very understanding why people don't. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an interesting line to walk. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, there's a lot more resources now, which is insane because I'm not that old. Um, Then there was, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. um, And and a lot of my patients are really fortunate to use this. Like Pale at Sunnybrook is a great resource. Um, St. Mike's has an early pregnancy loss, um, like departments, which is, I think, amazing. and, and so important because if you have 33% of all women having their, pre- their pregnancies, you know, end in a miscarriage and then to not have a specialized way of dealing with that within the medical community to me is both irresponsible and also 
a terrible way of using resources. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. That was long. That was long. No, no, no. I mean, we, thank you. Thank you for sharing that and for going there. It's, uh, it's just really powerful to hear, especially I think from somebody who has experienced so much, but is also, you're also someone in the community who's an expert who helps other women get through and, and, you can clearly hear the empathy in your voice because you're so understanding of however anybody wants to process pregnancy loss. And if they want to share, if they don't want to share, like it's such an individual, unique decision and there isn't a right or wrong way to do it. Right. It was really interesting. I, I read one of your posts, um, Nikki, that we're, we're talking about specifically, you know, teaching prenatal classes while going through, you know, miscarriage and then fertility treatments. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's so many women. And I think that is so powerful because you don't even understand how many other women are going through that same experience until, until you share yeah. it. Like I, I similarly was like, I would, my miscarriage before Zoe was, um, I had a, one of my patients, she was the first time patient and she was coming in for labor induction. And so it was like, I was having a miscarriage and we're oh. having to go to the washroom every mm. five seconds because I <gasps> thought I could go to work. Oh my God. Really stupid. And, um, and she, and I was inducing her baby. So like I, it was such a weird, she was like, I just want to go to the bathroom. She actually said, I didn't, I mean, she didn't know what I was going through. I just want to go to the bathroom and see blood. Like for the first oh time my God. in 40 weeks, I just want to see blood. And, and I was like, hold that thought. <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> I'll be right back. She was like, you sure? You keep on ducking out. I'm like, no, no, I'm cool. Stay oh still. <laughs> but you really, you you do, and I, I think about how many patients I have who are hosting baby showers. Oh, yeah. Who are working in, like, children's stores who are actually one of the most heartbreaking were teachers. And, mm-hmm. and they have parents coming up to them complaining incessantly about how awful the kids are and how lucky they are to be able to go home and, like, enjoy a glass of wine. And they don't go home and enjoy a glass of wine. They come to the clinic and they get acupuncture and pray that they will want to be able to get pregnant. So I think, yeah, being aware of audience and yeah. How do you handle like the whole concept of like self-blame, like the whole dialogue, the inner dialogue of your body is broken because that's a powerful one. And, and I constantly feel like, and, and I get a lot of women, sadly, each class, I have like hundreds of pregnant women do my prenatal push prep class, at least a few each session I refund because they experience a miscarriage. Aww. And, you know, and it, obviously no questions asked, like, you know, I'm here for you when you want to come back, it's here for you, blah, blah, blah. And I always will respond to their email and their refund to say, you're not broken. It wasn't all your fault. Because I feel like and I get shivers when I say this. I feel like women need to hear that because there is this part of them that probably does blame themselves on some level. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, I think so. I, um, that's, so this, that same miscarriage before Zoe, I was after I had, uh, so I, I left my first husband, you know, proper divorce and whatnot. I didn't just like run out of it. Um, I don't know why I need to clarify that, <laughs> but I just wanted everyone to know it and just run out on Nathan. See ya, Nathan. Um, oh, that was a good decision. Anyway, <laughs> for another, for another day. You're never there. Um, we went there. Wow. Yes. Um, and, uh, but so then I, I remarried and it was, I, my husband, my current husband and I really struggled. Like we had um, two back-to-back miscarriages. And after that second one, like I had left the ultrasound clinic and he had left to go take care of the dog, but he was sobbing. I've never seen him cry. And I walked, I walked to the clinic and like sat with my books. Like I focused on fertility. Like that's, that's what I had been doing since well, I mean, I like, I've only ever, um, apprentice under fertility acupuncturists. Like when I was in Vancouver, I was 
working with Lauren Brown for three years of the whole time I was in school. And all I did was fertility and I couldn't manage to maintain a pregnancy. And even those pregnancies, like it had taken two years at that point to become pregnant with, with, you know, baby before Zoe. So it was like, what's wrong with me? Like, I, this is what I do. How am I not capable of doing this? And, and especially because it was secondary infertility, um, at that point, because I'd had Aiden and Maddie, I was, I just couldn't figure it out. I was like, maybe I really am going through menopause right now. Like maybe that doctor was right. And maybe that was it. And I should just be grateful for what I have. Because a lot of the time, I feel like with secondary infertility, patients have said that to me, where they've come in and loved ones have said to them, like, just be grateful for the kid you have, Mm -hmm. which completely is, it disregards any type of, you know, desire or family planning that you might have for yourself. And it really, like, I despise that. Like, it just drops people down to, like, the lowest common denominator to just be Mm -hmm. appreciative for, like, what they have and to not acknowledge their needs, wants, and losses. So I think the concept of a broken body, I I still hear that all the time. Like when people come for um, treatment and I, I actually feel like, and everybody needs to find their own method of healing that thought process. And I don't think it ever necessarily goes away because I think it stems from the media and how we are raised essentially um, at a much deeper level to be looking for things that are wrong with us as opposed to things that we should love about ourselves. And so it's very easy to get irritated with ourselves. Like it, it, it's too easy. It's a reflex. And so I think being able to find something that heals you for me, it's, probably a combination of running because I'm good at running and I, I feel free when I run and it reminds me of that. I, you know, I'm, I'm capable and I'm an independent being and I can, I can do good things. I can do hard things. I can get through things. And so if, if that's the case, if that is true, then other things are as well. And so the idea of, being broken acupuncture is very much as an analogy and also just as a medicine, like traditional Chinese medicine, nobody's broken. So when you come in, you are merely imbalanced at your worst, but like acupuncture is not healing you. You already have all of the potential within yourself. So when that comes to like a fertility mindset, you already possess everything that you need and you might just need like a nudge in the right direction with, you know, the fertility center, you know, by doing a few different, you know, lifestyle shifts, but you already have within you everything as a potential that you need. You are more than enough. You are amazing. And, and that, you know, when patients come in and they're like, oh, well, now I've cut out alcohol, I've cut out coffee, I've cut out, you know, <laughs> I sleep 10 hours a night, I meditate, I don't have plastic, I only <laughs> use glass, I'm, everything in my house is organic, I've thrown out my husband's fabric softener, like literally every <laughs> single thing. And I'm like, and how do you feel? And they're like, not great. Like, I just want to break from it. And I was like, taking away your life isn't going to help you create one. Out, I love that. Like, yeah. you need to maintain joy. Yeah. And you need to have little bits of that in every single day. Yeah. So, like, there is no broken. It's merely an imbalance. And you can get back there. And that actually applies to lifestyle, too. Like, I think it's incredibly imbalanced to, like, not have wine. <laughs> Like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) No, it's true. Like right before our IVF transfer, we went to Paris and I drank all the wine, like right before the transfer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's great. It's great. 
No, and it was a juicy lining. I love that too. Cause that's like, that's facilitates a huge degree of confidence. Like I'm not going to be able to have this for like 10 plus months. So yeah. As well. True. Yeah. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, that was powerful. You, you like, I'm just like, we're both like hip, hypnotized and just listening to what you're saying. Cause it's just, yeah. we're both, I love that. What, what was, that was a line you gave in there about Thank like, you, you, I wrote it down. <laughs> I can see you letting Don't it down. Worry, like, I got it. <laughs> taking away a life is not going to create one. Taking yes. away your life is not going to create one. Yeah. And uh, it's actually interesting too, because women are so eager to remove things they enjoy from their life, but they are mm. so cognizant of how it will be hard for their husbands, which makes me so upset. Gag. Yeah. She's gagging. But you're physically, gagging. Physically, you're... <laughs> I, honest to God, like the number, it is more than 75% where I, because when I give an Rx, for a patient in terms of like supplementation and lifestyle, I recommend 50% of it is for them. And 50% yeah. of them is for their husband. And they're like, Oh, well his, his semen analysis was amazing. And I was like, newsflash, what is considered amazing these days hmm. in the 1940s would be considered we're going at extinct. Like <laughs> we, <laughs> can you also, okay. I am a very, we got to talk about this a little bit because this yes. is something that we had to go through a lot of male factor issues in my, yeah. my experience. And I've talked about this a bit on Instagram and whatnot and blogs and Huff Post because it, it makes me want to, I've gotten a lot more chill. Like if we'd had this conversation three years ago, I probably would be yelling into the microphone right now, but it makes me rather frustrated to put it mildly when there is such a, an assumption that, you know, it's the woman's quote unquote responsibility to conceive the child. And we're not talking enough about semen parameters and we're not talking about lifestyle interventions for men, for men. And we're not talking about the fact like that there's sperm fragmentation and issues that can cause these chromosomal issues that result in miscarriage. So like one thing that was really helpful for me to hear and I'm not even shitting you right now, is like, oh, your uterus is smart. It got rid of the bad sperm. <laughs> I was like, yeah, damn right, it's smart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everything, we have to constantly be compensating for their insanity. <laughs> Inadequacy. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this is what I'm saying, like, and, and it wasn't something that was put to, you know, like my, my father saying, well, you exercise too much and you don't need enough of red meat and you don't do this and you don't do that. But really like, and I just bit my tongue cause it wasn't worth it. And we had this conversation at the Christmas dinner table again, not worth it. But like, <laughs> again, it was this, and I tell women like who, especially who are, are struggling or in my classes, I'm like, it's not, I don't necessarily dive into it. Right. But I'm like, it's not your fault. You're not broken. Yeah. You know, so can you talk a little bit before we, we talk your ear off? We have a little bit more time about, you know, the, the male component to fertility. Yeah. I will say just to preface everything that you, if before you want to sit, before you would like to conceive a child with somebody, you should sit down with them and ask them straight up. Are you willing to take supplements change out of these teeny tiny tight briefs and get off of the Peloton like six days a week. And if they say no, then say you're not ready for this. Peloton. What? What? So ready. riding, riding by bikes is bad for sperm. It's not good. No, no, actually it's not. And I mean, it, if you think of it merely from the standpoint of heat and how mm. much mm. heat is then put on the testicles, like the reason why they're outside of the body and why heat is so damaging is because you can't heat up sperm. They will die. And so, or become, you know, you'll get a higher percentage of DNA fragmentation or the mm. motility will suffer um, or count just generally will go down. Um, and so it's important because a lot of the supplements that are going to be improving um, your semen analysis or your sperm are about blood flow and ensuring that there's good circulation. And so if you're then going to overheat with excessive Peloton riding, which 
honest to God, the, the pandemic, something I noticed all of a sudden was I was, I had, I mean, I had an influx of women come in for treatment, but a lot of the things that I changed, they, they all had like pretty regular cycles. They had pretty good periods in terms of like color, quantity, cramping, um, you know, PMS symptoms, et cetera, and so forth. But when I asked them what their husbands were up to, they were smoking a lot of weed. Hello, pandemic. Um, (laughs) Bad for sperm. I'm hearing that's bad for sperm. THC, it's funny. It really affects motility, which is really funny. You know, I just picture like, this isn't scientific, but because it affects motility. (laughs) They're baked. They can't swim. They're lazy. They don't know how to get the places. They're not (laughs) like, duh. (laughs) Yeah. They're they're chill. (laughs) So chill. (laughs) They're like, chill sperm. That's right. They're like enjoying the like sugar in your cervical mucus because they got the munchies. <laughs> Again, I really want to preface this is not science. <laughs> yeah, and I'm picturing cartoon now, in my head. I feel like the biggest takeaway people are going to walk away from is like Peloton's bad and sperm yeah. makes or pot yeah. makes your sperm like get munchies. <laughs> That's just the summary right there. That's it. Munchy sperm. Yeah. Do that. New hashtag right there. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the, the Peloton though, it really does. It, it, it because of the heat, it really wow. is much great. Yeah, I so didn't I, I never had heard, heard that before. I took, wow. I take men off the Peloton. I get them outside running or um uh using weights, which is great because it helps with testosterone production. Um and I ensure that they are not smoking weed that they are not having really hot showers or baths which was a new one for me <laughs> dudes having hot baths basically frying their sperm boiling it oh now <laughs> this is gonna sound judgmental but i think if i came home and you was sitting in a hot bath i just i don't know <laughs> I don't know what I would do, but I'd need a moment. I would. I I think I immediately would be like, are you unwell? (laughs) Did you hurt your back? And like really hope that that answer was yes. (laughs) I had like multiple women now. My husband, he likes to take a hot bath each night. Oh, wow. Every night? Every night. Some self care right there. Seriously, <laughs> I I had a roommate Blair. This was when BC, and he used to take hot baths with like non alcoholic beer. And I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure he was deranged. And like I, I don't know. Oh my god, we're both like crying. Like seen her crying. My husband takes hot baths. He's a champion. I'm gonna be like. <laughs> Quick fixes there, at least. Quick fixes. Get him out of the bath. Like nature doesn't intend for your husband to sit. Yeah. Oh, so great. Revolution. Get him out. (laughs) All right. These are some hot tips right here. And I didn't think we were going to go there, but we did. But we did. Okay, final words. What what do you need to tell us? What what is it that you want more women to know or people yeah. I should say to know about trying to conceive? Well, yeah, trying to conceive. I would say coming back to AMH, it is extremely important that you get a full picture of what is going on in your body and you don't just use AMH as the predictive factor for your fertility. This sounds very conspiracy theorist. And I think after that bath conversation, I've lost all credibility. But um, it's, it's, I think it's really interesting that fertility centers use AMH as a predictive factor and give their patients that number alone and then follow it up with diminished ovarian reserve and then don't explain what that means. So when you go, to the fertility center and they say that you have a low AMH, that doesn't mean that you have a lower chance of becoming pregnant. 
It merely means that you have a lower chance of conceiving using IVF or that if you choose to use IVF, because IVF is actually a really great option for women, especially if you want to have you know, more than one child and let's say you're 35, 36, you want, you know, that you want to have three to four kids. It makes a lot of sense to get embryos frozen so that you can use your 35, 36 year old embryos because you're like the lining and your body overall, is not going to age at the same rate as your eggs will, for example. And then in that case, I'm like, if you have low MH, even if that's the case, just do multiple retrievals. Anyway, that one really went off on a tangent there, but I really, I, I want to emphasize that IVF is a powerful tool, but it's not the be all and end all. And if IVF doesn't work for you, it doesn't mean that you're infertile. I, I run into that a lot, actually, but I think because fertility doctors, they want to help. And so they are using their wheelhouse and their wheelhouse is IUI and IVF, and they don't want their patients coming in and not getting success. They want them to become pregnant. And so as a result, um, you know, that's, that's what they understand. They understand low AMH equals, this is how I can help you. Um, and I, I get all the patients who, when IVF hasn't necessarily worked or when they haven't managed to get eggs retrieved, they come to me and I mean, I got a lot of patients where I work in conjunction while they're going through IVF and that works as well. But I get a lot of patients where they've gone, they've done IVF, they have not had any eggs retrieved, no blasts have made it. And because of that, they're now convinced that they are infertile because if modern medicine at the highest level didn't work for them, like they must really be beyond hope, which is my favorite for my own like egotistical psychotic self, because then when they become pregnant, they're like, you're a witch. (laughs) I'm like, I know. I, I, I used to be like, no, no. Own like, that. Just own it. Oh, we're, yeah. We're never actually infertile. You just didn't respond well to stents. That's what I used to say. And now I'm just like, yes, That's I am. Me. I am a witch. This Full is magic. Me. That child is partially mine. <laughs> I like some sort of association. And <laughs> Andrew, either one, middle name, even I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> not one what the hell right like not a single Anne. like hundreds of babies no like, not one ah one but she was like it's after my grandmother i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> where was she she wasn't poking you <laughs> all these babies <laughs> I kid. oh my gosh you're so amazing i love i mean i can only imagine how it it makes sense that you are able to like help so many women because I can only imagine someone going through like the heaviness of what they're going through and fertility and being able to come to you and like the combination of your expertise and lightness and just energy, energy pun intended, um, is amazing. Like it's, it's just so great to be around you. So thanks for coming on here and sharing all, all of this, (laughs) like, (laughs) Mm-hmm. All of it. <laughs> it was amazing. a blast. I really so hope Ethan and my mom and my current husband don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> we'll <laughs> see. Else does, but they skip. They true. can't. Oh, so good. Um, and then uh, just tell everyone where they can find you, and we'll link, of course, as well. Yeah, um, I think probably the easiest place would be on Instagram. Um, at Energy Tree Anne, I have a website for my clinic, and um, but it's it's mostly just about you know office hours and how to contact Janine, who is like the best, but but not me, and she'll get really irritated with me actually if I just say contact Janine. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, EnergyTreeStudios.com. Ask for Janine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your Instagram's amazing and um, you put so many great like resources and things out there as well. So everyone can follow you there and obviously visit you at energy at your energy tree at the oh greenhouse. <laughs> That's right. I'll save some plants for people to buy. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you, Anne. Thank, Thank you.
Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info. 